A well-informed citizenry is the best defense against tyranny. Thomas Jefferson said that or something close to it. But what happens when tyrants misinform us or worse, disinform us? To help us understand disinformation and its consequences, we're joined by three FTD scholars. Mark Montgomery, a retired U.S. Navy Admiral, who now serves as Senior Director of FTD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation. Emanuele Atalenge, an FTD Senior Fellow who years ago taught at Oxford. And Ivana Stradner, who has been a visiting scholar at Harvard and a lecturer at Berkeley and is currently an advisor to FTD's Barish Center for Media Integrity. I'm Cliff May, and you're about to get well-informed here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. All right, there are some complications, guys, I want to I want to put on the table uh, before we delve into this topic. And I want you to feel free to disagree with me or agree with me or embellish whatever you want. The first, the difference between misinformation, which is information that's simply incorrect, and disinformation, which means information that is intended to deceive. Now, we used to, I think we used to call this information propaganda, which is actually an imprecise term, right? Because one can propagate the truth as well as falsehoods. But we got used to talking about Soviet propaganda, and that altered the meaning of the word. Second complication, nowadays, I'm, I'm sorry to say, plenty of disinformation is being propagated by American and European media outlets, including some that used to pride themselves, maybe not always justifiably, on their journalistic integrity. And what I mean by journalistic integrity and I say this as someone who started making his living as a reporter in 1975, it means seeking the facts, verifying the facts, reporting the facts, differentiating between news and analysis, and an analysis one may disagree, and between analysis and opinion with which one may disagree. And I also want to em- emphasize that disinformation is more than just spin, which implies putting a better face on the facts rather than misresenting uh, the facts. Uh, all right, before I go on, I've got a, a lot. Anyone want to correct or quarrel or disagree with me before we move on? Good, then I'm going to go to this. The Atlantic Magazine and the University of Chicago recently had a conference on disinformation. I didn't catch much of it. I don't think you did. But our producer, Danielle, late last night sent me an article by Jonathan Tobin, the editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Service, JNS. And he pointed out that the keynote speaker was President Obama who, he said, defined disinformation as a systematic effort to either promote false information, to suppress true information for the purpose of political gain, financial gain, enhancing power, suppressing others, targeting those you don't like. Tobin writes, somehow it never occurred to the former president that it was an apt characterization of his own approach to public policy, uh, as well as that of his key media and tech allies. He points out that Obama 
and what a member of his White House staff, Ben Rhodes, called the media echo chamber, how they dissembled about the Iran nuclear deal with their, quote, utterly false claims about the agreement preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and being verified and enforceable. They omitted facts, such as the fact that the deal didn't just enrich and empower the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, but it guaranteed that Tehran would achieve its ambition to be a nuclear power. Uh, A little more context. Mark, you recently co-authored a really interesting article that attempted to put disinformation into a broad historical context. You wrote that America's adversaries have leveraged disinformation since the dawn of the nation. Elaborate a bit uh, for us on that. Sure, thanks. Uh, and the United States has used disinformation since the dawn of our um, of our uh, uh, independence. In fact, I'll start with that and say that you know, very famously, um, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, founder of the school I went to, uh, University of Pennsylvania, was a uh, one of our best dissemblers. When he was in Paris in 1782, he printed a complete false copy of the Independent Chronicle, a Boston-based newspaper and buried in it on the second or third page a story of uh American Indian of Indians coming down scalping 700 women and children and sending the scalps to King George. Uh that story then you know, the newspaper trickled back to the United States several months later and you know the idea he thought would it would stiffen the resistance to people who were getting soft on opposing the uh the British as the war dragged on. Um so he did it uh the, the British told Many fabricated many stories about George Washington and and his uh, his desire to be a king, you know, uh, following the revolution. And then, you know, pulling it forward, we gave a couple stories on on uh, on Soviet propaganda. And I have to tell you, the Soviet Union was a world class disinformation. And I mean, you can go back to 1970. I mean, pre 1917 uh, with the, the the Bolsheviks, but you know, the the two cases we had. Uh, involved um, a, a 19 um, a 1960s effort in uh, in the uh, Czech, in Czechoslovakia to find a uh, a box of uh, in the bottom of a lake a, a Nazi box with propag- with a, 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 you know uh, attempting to um, associate current German politicians with with being uh, you know with wartime uh, cooperation with the Nazis and then. Um, kind of more, even more egregiously, you know, spreading a false narrative in South Africa that AIDS was a CIA plot, you know, and that it, you know, its effectiveness was, you know, could could or could not be controlled, which in the end led to South South Africa after 1995, you know, throughout all this time, but particularly after 1995, taking a very laissez-faire approach. Uh, to the treatment of of AIDS and of HIV and AIDS in South Africa and led to a lot more deaths. So this raises a, an interesting question. I mean, should are, are we? Is it unfair of us to look upon this as something terrible? Is this just like espionage? It's kind of a dirty thing, but everybody does it. So expect deception and expect deception from politicians, from statesmen, from the press. Just, you know, it's all it's, you know, it's all it's it's smoke and mirrors and that's the way it is. And don't get too exercised about the fact, you know, that's a great question because it, it really gets and I'll try to take a military approach here and say it depends. It depends on the unintended consequences. 
you know, in other words, the practice of disinformation operations is an approved military technique, even for our own forces. Now, we're terrible at it today, believe me. And we're intentionally terrible at it because we've walked away from disinformation operations um, uh, after some 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 errors we made uh, in, in the Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns. But um, uh, we don't practice it at the same degree that our adversaries do. Now, I'm not talking about spin control by in the media echo chambers, as you mentioned with Ben Rhodes, I'm talking about as a military tool. But I think you should judge it by its unintended consequences. Like the the Soviet um, the Soviet uh, 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 information, the campaign against the German politicians with the you know the found papers, you know that did not have unintended consequences of other people dying. It it slowed down the Germans um, how they approached participating in NATO an extra decade. The but the, the attack, the disassembly about the origin of a, HIV and AIDS had an awful impact on sub-Saharan Africa and led to the tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of people dying who would not otherwise have died. There, you need to be held accountable, just like when you launch a missile. If you hit your legitimate military target and you've done the proper assessments, but there was a night watchman there that you didn't know about, you assess it and you say that was an error. But it was a, you know, it was a, a you know, re, what we'd say the military is an allowable error. If, on the other hand, you launch intentionally launch and just say it lands where it lands and it hits a kindergarten, you're going to be held accountable for an inappropriate, you know, for indiscriminate bombing and the deaths of civilians. I think it's the same way in disinformation. If there is a collateral damage impact, you need to be held accountable. You know, it is a tricky moral area. And we think about, I think we do, uh, about the morality of it. I don't think Putin thinks for a second about the morality of it. Uh, Ivana, let me go to you. This week, Putin said that reports of war crimes in Bucha are simply fabricated. And the interesting thing is that he thinks he can convince people of this. Maybe he can, because we've been seeing here, at least in the U.S., pictures from Bucha. And Western reporters, in this case, I would say good reporters, who are out there risking their lives. Uh, Trey Yinks uh, comes to mind from Fox. I think he's been doing a very good job. Uh, and Benjamin Hill, as you know, lost an arm and a leg and his eye and one eye and his hearing. I mean, he, you know, he's really sacrificed. Anyhow, um, Bucha is a suburb of Kiev, and it's very clear that war crimes were taking place. There are people being shot in the back of the head, their hands tied, left in the street, and mass graves. You can see it all. But he's saying that. And, and of course, initially, Putin said his aim was to denazify uh, Ukraine. Uh, and more recently, and I'm quoting here from Max Sidon of the Financial Times, Putin has said, well, we're, we're just trying, we're in Ukraine to help people. And we couldn't put up with it any longer. And we didn't have a choice. It's the right thing to do. Anyhow, talk a little about who Putin, Putin is, is convincing. I guess particularly inside Russia, um, there's a lot to talk about there, about what, what messages people are receiving and, and, and not receiving uh, since this war began. Uh, it's a big question, Ivana, <laughs> I know. It is. Thank you very much for uh, having me here today. And um, what we are seeing today, it's really nothing new, precisely what Mark stated. But I've noticed a very interesting pattern that already, you know, started in 2012, when the Kremlin actually became very paranoid about the social media platforms in the wake of mass protests. Um, they were going all over the Russia in 2012. 
And then uh, Putin decided that uh, the best way to uh, to defend his own country and to protect is to start banning uh, social media platforms. And uh, it was a very long process. Uh, so last year, um, finally, um, Vladimir Putin signed a very important law uh, that protects basically Russia's digital sovereignty. And the new laws theoretically allow Russia to impose any fines on platforms that do not block forbidden contact items such as call for suicide, child pornography, or information on drug use. But actually, it was very, very used for very different purposes. And what we saw in March, Russia completely banned social media platforms, foreign social media platforms. Exactly, foreign social media platforms. However, even though uh, we've done so many great things to protect ourselves from the Russian disinformation uh, in terms of, for example, making special, like uh, putting uh, additional algorithms on Twitter, for example, they do not recommend uh, foreign uh, Russia's uh, official governments. But the problem is what's happening inside Russia. Um, You cannot access any foreign social, almost any social media platforms. Um, The problem is that uh, even VPN, for example, is banned in Russia. And VPN just people a virtual person. It's a way to get through to get to, to get through the, the... virtual right, private okay. network exactly exactly so even that is banned in Russia but I mean Russia is Russia so it's always difficult to you know enforce these things so luckily there are still ways that uh, the Russians have access on it but the problem is something else that the majority of Russians don't even use platforms such as Twitter only three percent of the Russians use Twitter um, even without such laws they rely on domestic social media platforms such as we contact or telegram and uh, this is precisely how Russia is using this information for domestic audience and unfortunately the Russians absolutely live in a media darkness I mean even for example nowadays you cannot access easily BBC they went on dark web they suggested and they help are helping people you know to have access to VPN but this is something that I think the United States should do more. Uh, I'm not absolutely advocating for the United States to promote disinformation, but I'm not also sure that we are doing enough to promote information inside Russia. I'll give you the example. Uh, even the United Kingdom, uh, Boris Johnson recorded a beautiful video uh, a few days ago, exactly of those war crimes as you suggested. It was a fantastic information operation, Simon, if I may say, um, he with with very like a with with photos, everything was translated in Russia, but it was a mistake. It was shared on Twitter, and the Russians don't have access um, on Twitter. So one thing that I think that we should do, we should be more present in social on Russian social media platforms. I know that the U.S. government recently opened uh, its accounts on Telegram, uh, but I mean. If you compare the contact that the Russians are doing here in terms of um, in terms of uh, how many times they post per day, we are not doing enough. So um, unfortunately, it's that Russia is absolutely lives in a in an immediate darkness, and there are many opportunities uh, that we can actually do to to to, to send. Information so, here. although it's very hard for us to get information or the British to get information into Russia, so you know Putin. Uh, rather, uh, Boris Johnson went to Kiev, which was you know remarkable thing, and did a video of himself there. Probably, I, I mean, do you think most Russians even know he was there, or do they, or do they not even know that? 
So the majority of them, and the way that even the Russian government portrayed this thing, they were almost silent. But I'll give you another example, which is very, very interesting. I think I forgot to mention this as crucial, how the Russian intel operates over there and how they're using, like a TikTok now you can use on social media. So the Russian intel, they briefed uh, Russian famous uh, influencers, social media influencers, uh, using Telegram, and they give them the script that they have to say. And, and they bribe uh, them? I so mean, you, they pay them to these influencers on TikTok to give the message? We do not have this information. We do not have this information. We just saw that it was uh, coordinated on Telegram. They gave them the script and they instructed them what exactly they should say. And then suddenly on TikTok, which is the most popular media for youngsters, um, they were literally saying the same script over and over again, targeting young Russians. So this is how they spread, you know, uh, information in, inside inside Russia. So, but there is like a overall uh, this idea, as, as as you just mentioned, even if they see the the photo of Boris Johnson, they will not perceive it from the positive lenses. They will think, you know, that this is another conspiracy uh, conducted by Britain. And after all, uh, even uh, even in Belarus, uh, Lukashenko yesterday he stated this was all Bucha was actually uh, plotted by the United Kingdom. Mm. So mm -hmm. okay. Right. All right. A few things to unpack here and the people that the people listening may or may not know. And um, and Emmanuel, help us with it. So we just talked about TikTok and how popular it is. We talked about Telegram. Maybe you better. It's, it's worth it. Just give a, you know, 101 basics on what TikTok and Telegram are. Thank you for having me uh, on, on this forum. Uh, TikTok and Telegram, um, like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube are social media platforms which means that anyone can open an account. Uh, it's a very easy and cost-free process. And then you post material. Now, each platform has a different uh, format of how you interact with the platform, how you post, what kind of material you post. So on Twitter, you used to be able to post uh, um, links and commentary that was 140 uh, characters. Now it's 280 uh, or 288, I think. Um, um, Facebook uh, has a lot is a lot more content rich. YouTube is videos. Uh, TikTok is very short videos, and uh, Instagram is videos and photographs. So each has a unique uh, uh, format that is also uh, one of the reasons why certain platforms are more popular with certain uh, age groups. Uh, um, you know, the, the the shorter and quicker the message, more concise or or punchier in, in short time, the messages such as Instagram and TikTok, the younger the audience tends to be. You don't have to spend two hours reading a long article. It's a minute and a half video or shorter. So that's that's uh, that's what these uh, platforms are. And of course, Telegram and TikTok, unlike Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or WhatsApp, which is another social media plus communication platform, because you have group chats uh, that people can initiate, are um, you know uh, platforms linked to Russia and China. Now, I think that what is important. Forgive me, just finish this sentence, uh, and hopefully uh, then I can I can add some more after your your question. Is that social media has somewhat has completely democratized, if you allow me the term, 
the way information and opinion are shared. Um, and the, also, the, the source of authority on social media is not, I have a PhD, I teach at a university, I went to, I got a degree in journalism and, and worked uh, the, 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 you know, the, the local news uh, room for 10 years before moving on. And I have certain uh, deontological standards, et cetera, et cetera, which form the kind of Western canon for objectivity, integrity, and partiality. The criterion for authority is how many followers you have, how many likes you get, how popular you are. And, and so, and this gives us a profound difference between the age of propaganda of totalitarianism when we had print, radio, and then TV, and our current digital age, where I think the key difference is that the goal of the misinformation and disinformation sources is to create an environment where nothing is believable. It's not that they want you to believe something on the basis of facts and truth. They want to undermine the credibility of everything. And so we get to a point which is very much, you know, the post-colonial narrative that seeps through a lot of Western media as well that, that says, on the one hand, on the other hand, this is a point of view and there is another point of view. And so Infowars and the BBC suddenly become the same authoritative source on a topic and it matters more how many clicks they get than whether the information is true. Right. So you end up with no understanding or perhaps even belief in the truth, just a war of narratives. And a war of narratives is very important, particularly when there's a kinetic war taking place and you're trying to convince the public opinion of that. But one of the, it, it seems to me significant, you tell me if I'm wrong, Emmanuel, that TikTok is owned by the Chinese, by the, by, by Beijing, by the Chinese Communist Party. That, that, that's, that's the source of it. And that means, I don't know. You tell me what it means. It means they influence. It means they scrape information from everybody who's on TikTok, all kinds of personal information you don't realize you're revealing. Tell me about, just talk about that for a second, about what that means. So very simply, um, every social media platform um, collects and contains uh, terabytes upon terabytes of data, our data. You go on holiday in the Cayman Island to hunt our uh, shell companies by the Iranians uh, or the Russians, um, and you post a photograph uh, like the one I have in my background. You put it on Facebook. That photograph is stored. Now multiply that by billions of users of all of these platforms. This information is stored somewhere. Now, when you use a US-owned social media platform such as Facebook, your data is stored somewhere on a server in the United States, and the company has to comply with privacy and stored communication act policies with regard to releasing that data, making it public, um, uh, preserving it, not tampering with it, not using it for its own purposes. Now, there are, there are exceptions, of course. Social media platform can sell data to advertisement and commercial providers uh, for all sorts of reasons. But the bottom line is this, when it's owned by the Chinese or the Russians, if you post a photograph of yourself and your family or your bank account or personal information or what have you, those servers stored in China are accessible to the communist, to the Chinese People Republic's Communist Party. And that is a, is a big difference because you basically become vulnerable 
um, to blackmail. Uh, they can tamper with information. They're not bound by U.S. laws on privacy uh, and so on. Uh, let me ask you this question and, and try to answer it quickly because there's so much I want to get to. I'm confused a little bit by Telegram. Maybe you can, because it was started by two Russians, brothers, I think, but um, they're in exile or they're, they've expatriated. And I think it's now located like in Dubai or, or uh, in, in other places. And I'm not, it's not clear to me to what extent uh, Telegram is is Russian under Putin and to what extent it's 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 something else. Do you, anyhow, you know? You know, it's it's hard to ascertain. I can tell you that Ispan TV, the uh, Iranian uh, uh, Spanish language uh, uh, television platform, is incorporated in Spain. It broadcasts from Spain and Venezuela. Some of uh, its uh, uh, women journalists uh, are are Spanish uh, native, uh, Spanish Hispanic uh, or Spanish speakers. Don't wear the veil, but I can tell you, it's Iranian. <laughs> And the same, I think, is true with Telegram. Now, Telegram is an interesting uh, app because it a lot of people just simply use it as an encrypted uh, uh, instant communication uh, platform, like WhatsApp, like Signal, and others. If you want to send messages, you want to have you know further a guarantee of privacy from phone intercepts, say that you know Big Brother could be doing. Um, you use these platforms to text your friends, family, colleagues about what have you. But it also has uh, news channels. And again, they are uncensored, unfiltered, and easy to open. And it can be anyone from government to people to media outlets to influencers. And these channels post anything you can imagine. So I follow on Telegram um, a uh, an Iranian uh, uh, ayatollah who posts uh, almost on a daily basis um, bedtime videos on uh, you know Ashura, um, how Israel is evil, and you name it. Um, and you can find, of course, uh, ISIS. You can find the IRGC. You can find you can find just about everybody using those platforms. And that is the problem, that everything is on the same playing field and their validity is determined not by the content and the seriousness of the work behind it, but by how many followers they have. So we talked briefly, there's more to say about how Putin in particular is using social media and more conventional media first to persuade Russians that they should back him, that he what he's doing is legitimate. He's fighting Nazis. He's liberating um, uh, fellow uh, Russians who are some of whom claim to be Ukrainians um, from nefarious forces. Uh, and then he's also using a lot of these channels to persuade others in the U.S. They, they, even though Twitter is not used in, cannot be used in Russia, the Russians and Putin can use Twitter in the U.S. with bots and with real people to try to persuade Americans. But there's also, again, briefly, I want to get, um, an effort to convince people in other places. And you recently wrote, Emmanuel, a very good, very comprehensive piece on how the Russians are trying to persuade our neighbors in Latin America that they're the good guys, that this war in Ukraine is justified, that the Americans are the bad guys. And they're doing it through such more conventional channels as 
RT, which people have seen. I, I go to you go to hotels. I think in the U.S. certainly I've been, but I've been abroad. You turn on the TV in the hotel, and you may get Fox and CNN International, but next to it is RT and maybe Al Jazeera, and it's all like, yeah, who knows which is telling the truth. And in Latin America, there's a, as you describe it, there's quite an intensive effort. And I'm not sure the U.S. is making a similar effort to get its point of view across and to rebut the disinformation of the, that the Russians and, and the Chinese and the Iranians, by the way, are, have been pushing into Latin America. Go ahead, Emmanuel. Pick up from there. Uh, absolutely spot on. Um, you know, Russia, uh, Iran, uh, and of course, Venezuela being kind of part of the axis of resistance uh, as, a, as an anti-imperialist uh, uh, power uh, all have their own channels. Uh, the, the principal ones you mentioned are RT in Spanish called Actualidad RT. Uh, Telesur is the Venezuelan one and Hispan TV is the, the Iranian one. And then, you know, there's there's all jacks of trade that you find uh, in this, in this uh, environment. Uh, Hezbollah has uh, Al-Mayadin in Spanish. Um, and the list is long. What is clear is this. These powers who have ambitions to challenge and undermine American influence in the Western Hemisphere understand that there is a market of 500 million Spanish speakers in the world, most of them in Latin America, but 60 million of them uh, in the United States, and you know, I think that you can safely say that within a generation or two, Spanish will basically be um, America, the United States' uh, second official or unofficial language spoken uh, pretty much uh, everywhere alongside English. So there is a conscious effort by these three powers and their outlets to influence opinion, and they bank on an environment that is already very mistrustful of, so to speak, um, uh, traditional media platforms for many reasons. You know, most uh, newspapers and TVs in many countries in Latin America are owned by the ruling elites or this ruling family or that ruling family. Every president uh, uh, in Paraguay or in Argentina or in, in Ecuador at some point or another has owned a newspaper or owned a TV station. And these outlets tend to push a political agenda that serves their patrons and owners rather than telling the truth. So there is that widespread uh, distrust. There is a long history of anti-Americanism. Some of it perhaps somewhat justified because uh, we were not always uh, on the side of the angels. There is a strong history of anti-imperialist ideology, uh, you know, mixture of communism, Bolivarianism, Castro-Chavism, and so on, that is still uh, ubiquitous in every country. It's not fringe. Um, and uh, when you combine all of these things, that makes it for a fertile terrain for the kind of messaging that these outlets do. What is interesting about them is that despite the fact that they are formally distinct. When you start looking at who works there and the content they share, you begin to see how intertwined they are. And I just want to give you a funny example. One of the contributors to Hispan TV is the director of the Iranian Cultural Center in Madrid, 
His name is Yusuf Hernandez. He's a convert to Islam. He began his career in 1986 as a broadcaster for Radio Prague, which was the Soviet Union's response to Voice of America. So from being a, a Soviet communist propagandist in Eastern Europe in the waning days of the Cold War, he becomes a, a loyal follower of Ayatollah Khomeini and a propagandist in Spanish for an Iranian-sponsored outlet. And that is what you see within this. Okay, and let me, uh, let, let's mark, uh, let, let's add another factor, which is that China, by which I mean uh, the ruling Communist Party of China, Xi Jinping, is acting very much as what we might call a vector for Russian propaganda, as well as its own propaganda. You want to you want to talk a little bit about the Chinese role? Others may want to as well. Go ahead. Yeah, so I think first you're right. They've been an echo chamber to quote Ben Rhodes, uh, you know, for for the Russian uh, for the Russian efforts. Um, look, this is kind of free to them. This is kind of like um, you know they're not held you know they're not held accountable for this. Uh, they feel this is different than say shipping weapons, uh, you know, wh- which Russia would appreciate. There's some spare parts they'd appreciate, um, and they're not, you know, and they're still driving a hard bargain with the oil. They're not giving up money, you know. They're not giving on the things that would hurt the Chinese. They're not giving in. So this is a this is a, a free way of supporting Putin without, you know, sacrificing either economic value or really running into potential secondary or tertiary U.S. sanctions you know, with the, with the weapons transfer. So I think this is pretty smart of them. Um, they're getting away with it free. Look, and they're a world-class disinformation organization of their own. They operate differently. They're more, um, on occasion, they've been more subtle than the Russians. I mean, they ran a very, uh, what we call the charm offensive for nearly 10 years in Southeast Asia, where they really were a soft touch um, internationally, undermining the United States and, you um, and aggressively, you know, pushing their own value structure. But this is, um, you know, this kind of disinformation is, is easy for them. One other thing I'll mention about them, when you look at the Twitter accounts of Chinese diplomats overseas, the the majority, not even a plurality of their, of their posts are disinformation. They're disinformation aimed at the United States. They're disinformation aimed at host nation countries in the, the country they're in who support the United States or Western allies. And I should say aimed at the United States are our allies and partners as well, but, but also at the host nation uh, personnel or political parties that support us. And now they're being used as uh, they've been used as an echo chamber for Wuhan virus conspiracies that are in, you know, that are, you know, about it somehow coming from Fort Detrick or being part of a, a soldier accidentally brought it over during the uh, military Olympiad they ran, uh, you know, in the fall beforehand, you know, these kind of ridiculous um, conspiracy theories that counter the actual truth of what happened. And then, and then finally um, they're, they're being used to, to, um, to echo chamber Russian claims of, of why they had to enter, enter Ukraine and who's actually committing war crimes. So yes, the Chinese are complicit, but they're wisely complicit in a way that they won't be held accountable. The best of all worlds. I'll just mention that, that the Chinese outlets, and that is include the Xinhua News, the Global Times, people may have heard of CGTN. Um, they've got a combined following on Facebook, uh, estimated by uh, over 283 million people. Um, that's according to, let me give the credit to the nonprofit Center for Countering Digital Hate. 
And since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, they've been touting the false claim that the U.S. runs biolabs, bioweapons labs, not biolabs, bioweapons labs in Ukraine. They've asserted, along with the Russians, that Ukrainian neo-Nazis bombed a children's hospital, which we know was, in fact, bombed, I think we know, by the Russian troops. And they've suggested that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, was being manipulated by uh, George Soros. I have no love for George Soros, but I don't know that there's any evidence of that. Ivana, um, this Russian-China cooperation in info operations, um, you've written about it. It, It's been going on for some years, and it's it's fairly formal, right? This is not just they're they're helping out their, uh, their ally, but they're doing this very much on purpose because they know they're fighting an information war and Russia and China are on the same side. And I'm not going to, I don't know if I get in her time. This is, I mean, Matt Pottinger, who runs, who is the chairman of our Asia program, has called this Cold War II. And I think we are in Cold War II, not because we want a Cold War, but because it's been declared on us with the Chinese this time as the senior partner and the Russians as the junior partner. Tell us a little bit about this Russian-China cooperation and what you know about it, Ivan. Um, I absolutely agree with you. When the war started, um, even prior to war, I mean, there were numerous rushes, disinformation on U.S. Uh, led um, um, bio labs and how we are going to create like a chemical, how we are going to launch a chemical uh, weapons attack. But then when the war started, this was a wonderful opportunity for China also to jump in and to use that as a retaliation for COVID, how they perceive. So one thing that I've noticed while I was analyzing data um, is that messages really, really mirror each other when it comes to biolabs. I mean, you cannot even imagine like to what extent official messages were going, like to the extent that we're basically training migratory birds uh, to spread, uh, to spread, uh, just to spread uh, bioweapons. They recently went a little bit more, they became a little bit more tech savvy. So they they decided we are actually creating new drones that are going to uh, spread uh, bioweapons inside Ukraine. But what was very interesting to me, how immediately China and Russia together um, were spreading very, very similar messaging. And you're absolutely right. This is not a coincidence. There is... Uh, a very formal cooperation in information space. In 2015, China and Russia both signed uh, cooperation, what I call in information security. This was further reiterated in 2021. Um, and not only that, I'll give you the latest example. Even in the United Nations, both Russia and China are uh collaborating in um, establishing a new international order in information space. So in 2018, Russia put forward a resolution on how to regulate information security. And once again, they are not talking about cyber crimes, what they allege to, you know, talking about. This has nothing to do with that. This has everything to do with controlling information. Here in the United States, we want to protect information. Over there, they want to control. And imagine now they're going even within within, um, international institutions to formalize this thing through a a new, what they call it's a cybercrime treaty. And if you read a text of this resolution, um, that might actually become a new treaty very soon. This has not very little to do with actually cyber criminals. What it has to do, it has to do with information controlling, with um, 
with uh, open open internet because what I want to do, they call it a sovereign internet, like sovereign nations to have sovereign internet, right? So we cannot, you know, control their internet. So no wonder why Vladimir Putin also wants to completely get off the global internet. But Russia is Russia. They've been trying to do that and it hasn't worked so far. We are going to see whether it's going to work. But I'm saying it's not only that they informally cooperate in this area. This is really becoming a more of a formal cooperation. And finally, uh, we'll see new elections in the International Telecommunication Union. So far, that was led, that has been led by, by China. And uh, now China is absolutely supporting its Russian uh, counterpart. Um, and this is something that also the United States should pay more attention to uh, because we are competing against Russia this year. So uh, we need to be more present there because we cannot allow authoritarian regimes to control information. Well, yes, and, and you, you put that kindly. I just want to mention, I mean, FDD has a program in international organizations. What we've been seeing is the U.S. not competing effectively as if it doesn't matter because, oh, whoever takes over these international organizations, they'll be an international civil servant. And I'm sure that, no, they will not be. If an American goes to an international organization, he's an international civil servant. He doesn't take orders from Washington. If you're Chinese, you go, you take orders from Beijing. If you're Russian, you take orders from Moscow. And too many of our diplomats and too many people in the State Department, we just they just refuse to recognize that reality because it's inconvenient. Mark, I think you, you what? Oh, you're exactly right. I was going to pick up on this, that the, this is something that uh, Dr. Samantha Ravage and I have been writing on and working on for the last two years. And we've actually convinced enough people in the legislature, in the Congress that we need legislation on this. So what we've been pushing and advocating for is that the United States actually has to show up at these organizations. The International Telecommunications Union has, the, the Chinese have very aggressively, not just taken over the chairmanship, but taken over all the subcommittees. They they produce a majority of the uh, of the uh, provisions for review, you know, a super majority of them. And, that, and then in the United States has just abdicated its responsibility since the end of the Soviet Union, you know, says that we've taken like a 30 year holiday, you know, we kind of put into place a, a transparent rules based system and then walked away. Shockingly, the Chinese decided not to go along with that. And since about 2002, they've been pushing hard and 18 years of good work have left them in a position where they and only that they're taking the ITU's mandate and expanding it to the Internet, which is actually not its mandate. And so they're they are going to drive a sovereignty based uh, security based uh, non, non-human rights, non-transparent, non-rules-based system um, that will be widely propagated. They do this at the IS, at several other international standard-setting organizations. So the legislation we've been pushing says, look, U.S. government, get, get off your backside. First, organize yourself. Actually have an agency in charge. We'd like to see State Department, Commerce Department, depending on the on the group, lead it. But on top of it, begin to work with our private sector partners. You know, facilitate their participation, make sure we're looking out for their interests, because that's what China does for its state-owned enterprises. They literally give their attendees at these conferences financial rewards for every piece of provision that's passed. I'm not recommending that for us. I don't think we want to be giving our civil servants rewards for passing these provisions. What I want is an actual organized process. And so we're having to do this insanely through law. But we're going, I believe the Congress will direct 
the executive branch to get organized, get together the private sector and begin to, to do this. We've done it once before. The World Intellectual Property Organization was almost taken over by the Chinese a year and a half or two years ago. And at the very last minute, Secretary Mike Pompeo stepped in and basically, you know, strong armed an, an alliance of the, you know, a, 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 an alliance of the willing you know, who, uh, you know, basically those who believed in a transparent rules-based system. We defeated the Chinese candidate, put in a Singaporean candidate. And that's critical because the Chinese candidate could have then moved the stowage for all this intellectual property that usually sits there 18 to 36 months while it's being adjudicated to China. And I'm pretty sure that's the last place anybody developing these, this intellectual property would have wanted it to sit. So we can do this we just, it really takes attention to detail. And it's not something the federal government, the executive branch does well. And so it takes outsiders like us kind of pointing this challenge out and working it. I absolutely agree with you uh, because they're exactly doing the same thing with the open ended working group inside the United Nations that was led by China, uh, that was led by Russia and supported by China. And very few people actually really pay attention to what's happening in subcommittees. And no wonder how Russia and China are able really to uh, make the coalition of the willing. And when you see even, uh, for example, for the latest uh, United Nations uh, uh, Human Rights Council support, like what nations actually supported Russia or abstained? Uh, I mean, and and you will see a fascinating thing what's happening even with the African nations. So uh, we really need to be, I think, more active over there. Well, I mean, we don't have a lot of time for this, but we talk about Latin America, we talk about Russia. Africa is is a difficult place. I lived in Africa for three years. Difficult place for information. Most people do not, you know, they're not getting on their laptop and, you know, that's not how they're doing it. But the Russians, the Chinese um, and the, the Iranians and various jihadi groups, they've taken a serious interest in Africa and they are trying to use disinformation um, to, to turn them, not least against the U.S. Maybe just say a few words about that and then we'll, uh, we'll go to our last, uh, our last questions. Uh, and I'm talking to Ivana, yeah, because you, you, you know Africa. I mean, you know about what's going on there. So what's happening right now, you can actually see even the Russian Wagner Group, which is a paramilitary basic organization that is increasing not only military, but information operations across Africa, exactly discussing about these anti-Western sentiments. Um, and uh, not only that, for example, many people think, you know, that bots are coming only from uh, St. Petersburg Troll Farm, uh, the internet, uh, what I call it, internet troll agency that is linked to, uh, to, uh, to, the, to the Russian intel. No, they actually have numerous troll farms across the globe, including Africa. For example, they had Russian operatives even in Ghana and Nigeria. They created fake profiles. They were actually peddling this information back uh, in the United States. And someone at the very beginning of our conversation mentioned uh, South Africa. I think one of the most powerful uh, embassies, Russian embassies, actually is located in South Africa in terms of peddling disinformation. It's fascinating how they're uh, projecting uh, projecting this war and with a specific audience that is going exactly uh, inside, inside Africa. So in Sudan, uh, for example, the Wagner Group also have the regime under the president uh, Bashir, but also using information operations back in 2018. It never stopped. So uh, 
these are probably, you know, some of the things that we should also pay attention to, because I know that the Maryland Guard Information Operations Team, they were deployed back in 2019 in Africa, and uh, we might consider doing something like that. More. And, yeah, and I want to give our listeners a very quick sidebar on the Wagner Group or the Wagner Group and what it is. It's Russian-sponsored mercenaries. They don't wear insignias. They are, I would argue, neo-Nazi. The reason they call themselves the Wagner Group is because of Wagner, who was anti-Semitic and who was pro-Nazi. Um, they were, a, a squad of Wagner Group was sent into, was sent to Kiev to assassinate it assassinates Zelensky. Zelensky, he didn't, it didn't succeed, which is a good thing. Um, another Wagner group was in Syria and tried to attack the Americans who were stationed there, and they evidently got wiped out, and Putin didn't say a word about it. Why? Because it was humiliating that they got wiped out by American special forces who were simply better fighters than they were. This is, but this is, this is what, this is a different tool. Maybe we'll do another podcast on it. It's a very interesting and, and ominous tools. So look, for, for my exit question, let's just talk a minute and you can get any points that you want to about what can be done about all of this, um, both to fight back against the disinformation being used in America and around the world against America and also our inability, you know, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Uh, yeah, I remember years ago, the inside, the in-sound from the outside I remember Russians listening to it because that's how they could get the truth because they couldn't from their own government. It's been shut down pretty damn effectively. There's two things one can do. One is a high-tech approach. I turn to you for that, Mark. One is a low-tech approach. I turn to you for that, Ivana. And the reason is because you wrote about something that I thought about, which is that the BBC in the same position said, okay, the hell with it. We'll go back to shortwave radio. That's what we used to do. Let's see if they can stop us there. I used to, when I ran around the world as a foreign correspondent, I carried a, a shortwave radio the size of a bread box so I could listen to the BBC and Voice of America and other things and find out what was going on, you know, in the jungles of Africa. Anyway, um, Mark, why don't you start on this and then I'll let each of you go for a few minutes and then we'll, we'll close out for today. So I do think there's some things we can do on the high tech end. First of all, if you want, like, first of all, I'm glad to see Radio Free Europe, uh, Radio Free Asia, making comebacks. The United States uh, and making comebacks as as uh, as uh, well well supported by the government, not the not the speaking of the government. I, I don't think we should be the uh, the U.S. government should be the purveyors of truth, but I think we should support uh, journalism that attempts to be broadcast into Europe and Asia. Um, and I'm glad to see that making a comeback and, and, and it would know not its 1960s ties to the CIA and such, um, but but truly, you know, good journalism. Um, so we there are things we can do. Look, with websites, you can use as they block your website, you can use copies. That's going on right now with Radio Free Europe. They're playing, you know, I think Radio Free Europe calls it a version of whack-a-mole. They're bouncing around from from, you know, site to site to site, continuing to try to push the message in. Um People will get that message if you can get it in. And then once it's in, someone else internally in Russia can retransmit much easier and, and you can get that message in. Now, look, there's a risk as a Russian receiving this message, just like there's a risk of a, for a Chinese, uh, you know, um, uh, activist to receive messages from the, from uh, American and Western interlocutors. But I, but there's a there's also an appetite for this in Russia. There's an appetite for the truth among the 40 percent of the people 
who I think question, you know, the validity of of Putin's rationale, uh, ra- rash, uh, rash, the rationality for this war, and 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 what he, he's been doing, and that will only increase. Eventually, you don't have to send the bodies back from from war when the children don't come back. You know what? I lived in the Soviet Union uh, from seventy nine to eighty two. You know, during the, Af- the uh, Afghan war, and that you know what, that was the first significant you know, struggle the Soviets had to deal with was the parents, as opposed to how the U.S. handles combat uh, deaths, which is we absolutely recognize the, uh, you know, as you know, here at FTD, we work closely with Gold Star families. We recognize the sacrifice of the families. The federal government recognizes the sacrifice. We publicly bury them. You know, there are ways this will come back on Putin. So we have to continue to put the information in so the truth is out there for people to go get. And I think we're doing that. Look, is it going to work perfectly? No. But the beauty of technology is it moves faster than the counter to technology. And that message is getting in. Um, I'll pa- pass it over to Ivana for some low-tech solution. I'll let, I'll let Emmanuel get final thoughts there, and then we'll end with you on the screen. Two final thoughts. The first is that uh, as I listened to my colleagues uh, and, and learned a lot from them, uh, the way they described uh, how Russia and China are infiltrating uh, um, the UN very much reminds me uh, of, of, you know, of the old game. This, this is the, you know, the, the third international uh, agitators infiltrating the trade unions in the West. It's the same game, uh, taking over, changing radically the agenda. Um, and, uh, you know, so maybe the first thing we need to do is go and study history, um, um, look at how we dealt with um, the Soviet Union um, and the communist bloc, uh, how we, we countenance their uh, techniques uh, to spread misinformation and propaganda and also to take over institutions abroad, infiltrate Western societies. I mean, you know, I was I was very heartened this week to see the leaders of the German Greens uh, take a very strong stance uh, against Russia, uh, given that, that, you know, I came of age politically when the Greens in Germany were pretty much funded by the Soviets to run the anti-Euromissile uh, 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 civil society campaign in the 80s. So we need to go back um, and study history and, and learn more about how to con- to respond to this actions and techniques because uh, it's it's nothing new we've seen it before okay so uh there are so many thoughts that i have i promise i'll keep it super super short uh for my policy recommendations because uh, there are so many things that we have to do um first of all russia openly states that information has become a weapon and this is what i see and this is exactly why we should counter them with the same strategy Information superiority and anticipatory operations will be the main ingredients of success in in new generations' wars. And we cannot fight Russia with this information. We can fight Russia with information. And there are several things I think that we we should do. Um, First of all, uh, BBC, they they, they, they are using um, regular radio shortwave. And I think other social, other media platforms should also follow that. Second thing, many Russians do not even have, they do have access to the internet, but they do not have access to VPNs. And we need to provide them with more information about this. I cannot tell you how many people reached out to me just to ask me, for example, uh, about 
the most credible VPN systems that they can use. So that's something we can do. And third thing that we can do, certainly, you know, leaflets coming from American aircrafts want it. They want, but there is something that I think we can do. There are two things. Number one, uh, President Biden, he recently uh, asked several TikTokers, he briefed them to help American audience uh, to understand what's happening uh, in Ukraine. I think this is exactly a similar strategy that we should do in Russia. There are so many young people and influencers that left Russia that we can actually uh, also brief them and to help them to help us also provide information inside Russia using Russian language and social media platforms. And the last thing that I want to emphasize, there is a new thing called Call Russia, uh, which is they you can sign up, they give you a random number. Um, and so you can actually call a random Russian and provide them with, with the truth. So uh, there are similar initiatives, for example, using text messages, et cetera, et cetera. They might not work. For many, you know, Russians, they won't work. But it's better even if we've managed to influence five Russians than zero. All right, listen, I think we've raised a lot of issues and at least touched on them. I think we've provided a few answers, probably left the listeners with lots of questions. Thank you, Admiral Montgomery. Thank you, Dr. Strander. Thank you, Dr. Otto Lenke. Those are all real titles, but they don't reflect how many clicks you have. So what's, what does it matter? Uh, and uh, and listen, thanks to all of you. I hope, that, I, I hope this has been helpful to you. There's much more for us to discuss, and we will going forward. So thanks for being with us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening foreign policy.